Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, Comments, views, and opinions provided in this podcast should not be construed as the provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In today's episode, I am joined by Pankaj Balani, co-founder and CEO at Delta Exchange. Pankaj, it's good to have you on. Thanks, Joshua. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And, uh, you know, really excited to be a part of this podcast and... Uh, a big hello to everyone who's listening. So let's let's dive right into it. So you have a, a you know, was looking through your, your LinkedIn, a super interesting background. You know, you were a sales trader at UBS. You know, you developed quantitative strategies. You know, then you led product and e-commerce companies, started another company, went to crypto. Can you give us a bit of a background on on yourself and how you found yourself starting a cryptocurrency derivatives exchange? Sure. So my background is essentially um, markets, derivatives, and entrepreneurship. That's essentially, you know, if I have to sum up my 10 to 12 years of experience, that'd be it. Um, I spent about uh, good eight years in uh, trading uh, derivatives uh, on the equity market side, traded pretty much everything under the sun um, on the listed market side and, uh, you know, product-wise on the listed market side and on the OTC side. Uh, worked uh, in the Asian region, so have a good understanding in, uh, of the markets in uh, in Hong Kong, in India, Taiwan, Korea, and you know have pretty much uh, traded with largest of hedge funds here. So I was very lucky to be part of uh, UBS Investment Bank, and was very lucky to be part of uh, one of the largest uh, uh, you know derivatives desk globally. Um, primarily focusing on the Asian uh, derivatives. Uh, Worked with them, then worked with uh, a hedge fund doing Gamma Short uh, and other trading strategies and building other trading strategies. Uh, Then set up a derivatives business for a boutique London-based bank in India. And then, you know, I decided to kind of... uh, do something different, take a break from the markets for a bit. And I went and joined an e-commerce company, uh, which some of my, two of my friends had started and they were still in the garage stage. So, you know, it's it was a very organic, uh, this thing. I was like, what are you guys up to and what are you doing? And I was so enthused by what they, you know, they were looking to achieve. And e-commerce was going through a big uh, uh, growth phase in India about, uh, five years back so so yeah um i started with them i led growth and when i joined them we were in garage and and we went to 20 million dollar annual sales pretty quickly uh the company is doing pretty good we have uh goldman sachs as investor in that i uh, and post that you know i uh, then again joined a few of my friends and was uh, got very interested in the cryptocurrency space so we started looking at crypto markets, started looking at Bitcoin. This was early to th- early to mid-2017. And then when we looked at these markets, we realized that, look, uh, you know, there is something missing. 
there's something missing in the ecosystem and that is derivatives because uh, if you if you really wanted to scale these things up if you really wanted to so bitcoin i've been following since 2013 and but in 2017 i st- actively started to follow the crypto markets and also ethereum quite a bit and that is when i realized that look this is a really powerful uh, tool uh, but yeah to be able to do huge business on uh, ethereum or on other coins that we are coming up with you'll need active derivative markets and then when we looked at derivative markets there was only a handful of exchanges i think bitmex was the only big exchange back that, uh, back then and had only one product which was Bit- bitcoin perpetual swap uh, which was uh, recently liquid but beyond that you know there was no um, first of all the derivatives market was really small there was one player that too had market which was smaller than the spot market and then there was you know not many places where you can trade options or ethereum futures or something of that sort and so i guess you answered my next question which was going to be what what drove you to 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 start uh you know delta and to start a derivatives exchange so you know what did what did you guys actually launch with did you launch with bitcoin ethereum contracts you know how do you determine what to launch with uh, and and just you know, why don't you just go into what Delta is and and what it was when you first started and what it is today? Sure. So you know, like I was saying, when we saw this, we were like, okay, this is pretty interesting. This is pretty, uh, you know, these markets will need a derivatives kind of infrastructure. And it was like all, everything started to come back to me, and you know, then I joined these two friends of mine. One of them comes from finance. Uh, another one comes from building technology. And then we launched a platform on uh, in 2018, August. So we've just completed like two years. And we started with Bitcoin Future. Uh, that was the first contract that we started to offer. And then we launched Ethereum Future. And then, uh, you know, we started to launch futures on smaller coins. So we started to, uh, we started with uh, XLM Future. And the reason to launch XLM Future was we had been following XLM very closely. Uh, one of the advisors in, uh, to the XLM team uh, is also an advisor to Delta, uh, Professor Bhagwan Chaudhary, who was uh, you know uh, uh, head of finance faculty at uh, UCLA earlier and is also my professor. So we know him. I've learned about blockchain from him, and that's how you know there was a natural affinity towards XLM, and we we started to launch offer a market on that. Uh, then very soon we offered BNB uh, futures contract. That was that was way back in October, November 2018, October 2018. And at that time, nobody was even talking about leverage on smaller coins. So that became, uh, that caught a lot of attention, you know, because here we had something different. And BNB was, uh, you know, a very good performer in the, in the bear market in 2018. So... By the time, actually, uh, by the time we started our exchange, uh, Ether had taken a huge beating. So, you know, there was not a lot of interest uh, to short and hedge Ether. So, uh, essentially, then, uh, you know, BNB was the first contract that became a big hit for us. And that is when a lot of people started to, you know, give attention to Delta. And uh, very early, we realized that, look, we have to build, a, a, you know, this market has a strong player in the Bitcoin perpetual swap domain and Bitcoin is going to remain the strong or market leader, will have market dominance. Uh, but there's a huge, you know, set of other coins that are there 
on which there's less competition, on which the hedging solutions are not available. And then when it comes to products, options was really small then. Uh, options on altcoins still don't exist. So yeah, that was the area that was kind of, uh, you know, what we decided to attack. And yeah, after that, we launched a bunch of other coins. We now have close to 30, 31 coins. Yesterday, we launched Wi-Fi, which is a DeFi coin, became a, you know, a, a good success for us. We've done a million dollars in less than 24 hours, in close to 24 hours. So when you so when you were first kind of looking at this market, you mentioned that BitMEX was the only player. But since then, we've seen a, we've seen a lot of other companies move into the space, whether it be FTX or whether it be Binance. Uh, so, what makes diff, uh, Delta different from all those those platforms? And I, I know you mentioned the long tail of altcoins. Um, is that is that different from from players like FTX? So let me come to that. Uh, now, when we launched, BitMEX was a major player, right? Only major player, I would say. You had derivatives on OKX as well. Uh, not very popular, decently popular, but yeah. Uh, and derivatives were also heating up. Okay, uh, Deribit was also there, but Deribit volumes were also quite small. So if you go back in 2017, December, you would see that implied volatility on Bitcoin options on Deribit was close to 500%, if I'm not wrong. I remember I was checking those markets and, you know, IVs used to be really high. Now the IVs are 60% per annum. So anyways... See, okay, before answering that question, let's take a step back and see the journey of derivatives in the crypto space. Now, typically, any asset, look at equities, look at FX, look at, you know, bonds, derivatives are huge, but yeah, look at any other asset. You'll see that derivative markets are five to eight times the size of underlying spot markets. So if you look at equities, you'll see that there is about 75 trillion of equities outstanding globally about 600 trillion of derivatives on top of that. Uh, similarly, FX, uh, derivatives trade about 4 trillion on a daily basis and spot trading on FX is like 1.2 trillion on a daily basis. Way back in 2018, first half, the contribution of volumes in crypto spot or crypto spot volumes were actually bigger than crypto derivatives volumes by a factor of 3 to 4. Uh, I think... I don't think BitMEX was doing a billion dollars on a daily basis back then. So yeah, the spot volumes were a lot bigger than the derivatives volumes. And then all the derivatives volumes were also coming from a single product, which was Bitcoin perpetual swap. So not even Bitcoin futures. So single, single, you know, big player, single asset class, and then single product on that. Uh, this was a big sign that things are going to change here. And uh, now derivatives volumes are uh, at parity or a little greater than the spot volumes, but still the dominance of volumes on the spot side, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the dominance on of crypto derivative volumes on the on Bitcoin side, as in most of the volumes are in Bitcoin contracts, uh, that hasn't changed and that we think will change in a big way. And I think that will happen in a bull market because uh, what has happened? And do you think the, that's more a, a factor of institutions moving into the market and wanting to hedge? Uh, no, because I think there are very few institutions in the altcoin space. Uh, there might be some coming in now and there will be more coming in into DeFi space because the predictability is high. But there are very few institutions in the other altcoins. Honestly, I think a lot of institutions have moved to Bitcoin in the last six months. But yeah, uh, there were there were always people well, I guess, who were I guess institutions. Is a 
is a broad term, right? I mean, yeah, what does absolutely. an institution actually mean in crypto? So, yeah, I guess I guess you know, I'm 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 leaning more into the idea of do you think the emergence of derivatives markets will make it more digestible for an institution to start touching more than just Bitcoin? And by institution, I mean family offices and and smaller hedge funds, not not pensions. Yeah, those are big guys, right? And um, so, okay, the way our, we define institution for ourselves or internal purposes, is, and we, we so anybody who's managing their own money is not responsible to anyone uh, to reporting anyone, and or managing proprietary money. We we tend to segment them as professional. Uh, they might be managing big capital, but still they are not answerable to clients on a quarter to quarter basis. And uh, the reason that is that that kind of gives you a lot of ability to hold a loss making position, right? So you can be underwater for a long time and still be holding to your position. Whereas the institutional typically would have a reporting structure every three months. So they are more disciplined with their uh, money management. So anyways, uh, I think that kind of money is starting to enter cryptos and has started uh, in uh, last six months pretty aggressively. Uh, and but it's mainly going towards Bitcoin. And part of the reason is, uh, so it's a symbiotic relationship, right? If you are a professional money manager, you would want the asset class to be big and you would want a active derivatives market on, on that asset class because you will need to hedge your positions because you need to report numbers every three months and you know you cannot have too much volatility or you would want to avoid too much volatility or at least if not volatility, drawdown in your portfolio. I mean, when you are in crypto, you expect or want some kind of volatility, particularly on the upside. But yeah, you want to avoid drawdowns. Uh, now, this is, like I said, a symbiotic relationship. The more people come in, the more derivatives markets grow and the spot markets grow. And the more mar these markets grow, the more people they attract. So that builds a virtual uh, virtuous cycle. Uh, but coming back to the point on altcoins, uh, still pretty nascent, still pretty small, not a lot of institutions or professional money uh, there, uh, more retail driven. But what has changed is that 2018 has kind of, you know, okay, 2018, why did derivatives become active? Why did the derivative market go through an inflection point? Uh, what was the catalyst? The catalyst was that people were looking to short Bitcoin and then futures was a natural instrument or perpetual swap was a natural instrument that was available. So a lot of retail, uh, you know, got that who were in crypto and active in crypto got that training that, look, you can also go use leverage and short Bitcoin. And now when markets are moving up, a lot of these guys are participating on the upside as well on the uh, using uh, futures and swaps. And that customer education has kind of happened. And that has happened not only for Bitcoin, but also for altcoins. So these are things that we see. Uh, a lot of people come and do cash and carry in Bitcoin. Uh, some people come and do cash and carry even in smaller altcoins. But then they have to be very careful because you have to keep enough margin on your, uh, you know, uh, on your short leg. Uh, because these things can move really fast, can go against you and liquidate your position. Uh, a lot of people do hedging activity on Bitcoin, both through futures and through options uh, on Ethereum as well now, particularly after the movement that has happened in last uh, six months on the DeFi side. On altcoin side, we see a lot of speculative activity. We see a lot of, we rarely see much of hedging. Uh, 
we see mostly speculative activity where people are using leverage to buy these coins. And that, you know, ratio of derivatives volume on altcoins to spot volumes on altcoins is, is increasing rapidly. And so yesterday what we launched, like I said, was Wi-Fi Future, right? Now, now the spot volumes, uh, uh, I mean, the spot has been active only in last few days. And now here we have a futures uh, contract and there's enough activity in that too. So anyways, uh, this is in my, uh, what I was saying, the journey of kind of futures market in crypto and how you think about what products do you want to offer, uh, what are the areas that you want to attack. And for us, it has been altcoin futures. Now, we went into this market and, and altcoin futures is, is not that simple a problem to solve because it takes a huge toll on your technology. Right. When you are running a futures market, you have to build technology that can support so many altcoins. So we'll come to that. But yeah, uh, that we think, uh, you know, is going to be pretty important and pretty very critical, uh, particularly in a bull market that not being able to support enough number of contracts is going to become a challenge for exchanges. Uh, besides that, the other things that we are attacking is options. So we are one of the few exchanges that has options and then we are the only exchange uh, that is offering options on altcoins. Uh, we are also attacking other, uh, you know, products, for example, interest rate uh, products. So we offer interest so rate swaps. Yeah, I was about to say, I would love to learn more about the move swaps and interest rate options that you guys offer. Can you can you kind of dive in and, and tell us about the, those different products that Delta is you know, offering to their customers? Sure. So move options and interest rate swaps. Now, interest rate swap is basically a fixed floating swap. Like one party agrees to pay a fixed rate, other party agrees to uh, you know pay a floating rate and they exchange uh, basically their uh, liabilities. It's a very standard product in the traditional markets. Uh, now, we have started that in crypto. Now, one of the common pain points that we heard in crypto uh, markets was the variability of the rates. Now, one of the most popular rates is the rates on BitMEX perpetual swap contract. Uh, in a bull market, the rate tends to become very high. In a bear market, the rates tends to become, you know, go other side and become ne big negative numbers. So... What we started do, to do was give a product to people that, look, you can come and hedge these rates. So you can come, and, come on Delta and buy a product wherein you will pay a fixed rate and, you know, uh, you will swap your variable liability with a fixed liability. And uh, this is also a way for you to... It's a really interesting idea. Have you, have you started to see any traction on that product? Yeah, huge traction. So this product is, you know, started as an interest rate swap. And that's what the thing, right? The how market catches up things. So uh, this is also a way for you to kind of bet on the relative performance of uh, relative uh, return of uh, two cash and carry strategies. One, which is, so essentially futures is a fixed rate uh, basis, right? Fixed rate, fixed interest rate contract and perpetual swap is a variable rate contract. So essentially, you are capturing the difference between the two interest rates. So this contract can be used in three ways. If you are long perpetual swap and you're worried about your funding cost, you can basically 
you know, go long this contract, pay a fixed rate and earn the funding. That's the first insurance kind of a solution. Second is if you want to bet on the uh, direction of interest rates uh, or funding rate on BitMEX, then those are range bound rates. You can go long short contract whenever it moves out of ranges. Third is that you can trade, you think of it like a spread contract, a spread contract between a futures position and a perpetual swap position. So long future and short uh, perpetual swap. So a fixed interest rate plus the index price can be thought of a future of, you know, given maturity. And we have seen a lot of traders come, particularly on the institution side, a lot of traders and, you know, come and start to trade it like a spread contract where they are trading the spread between uh, the perpetual swap and the future. And now we are launching the same contract on Ethereum that look, uh, you can earn the interest rate differential between Ethereum perpetual swap and Ethereum future, so to speak, or synthetic future. And uh, you can enter this position. It will be, you can enjoy huge leverage on these contracts. Uh, there is portfolio margining built in. So these are basically good, high yield, low risk kind of products. And this is something that we've, uh, you know, this product we launched about two months back and we've seen tra more traction than we expected. And most of our traders in this contract are actually, the ticket size is pretty good. So every trade that we see is pretty, you know, people accumulate. So basically, a few people trading big sizes. And essentially, they are trading the difference between the two interest rates, the variable interest rate against the fixed interest rate and earning the differential. And, uh, so, and so what products are you seeing the most traction on right now? Um, are, are there specific uh, contracts that you have out? Are there specific tokens that you're seeing um, a rush towards uh, more recently? You know, wh where is the traction uh, in terms of, you know, you know, which contracts and assets? So, you know, Bitcoin futures or Bitcoin perpetual swaps by definition and because they are, you know, like the heavyweight in the market, the volumes on those are always pretty high. Uh, so they form good 60 to 65 percent of our volume. Now altcoins is quite sporadic uh, and very, you know, activity driven, which is also as expected. Now these days, in last month or so, there's been a lot of activity in DeFi coins. Uh, there was a season when we were seeing a lot of activity in exchange coins. Then there are times when you see uh, Link. We have seen a lot of activity. Lend, Lend we have seen a lot of activity. Uh, Wi-Fi, we saw a lot of activity yesterday. Then uh, things like Kava, SNX, uh, all these futures are listed on Delta. We've seen a lot of activity in those. So uh, this is quite thematic. Uh, you know, just, just as in equity markets, there is an index, which always has higher volumes on the derivative side. And then there is sector-specific interest. So sometimes you'll see technology do well. At times you'll see banking do well. At times you'll see, you know, some activity in... Uh, uh, consumer goods or consumer durables so you or you know different sectors uh, and this is the same pattern that we see in cryptos as well that depending on uh, what is the flavor of the market we see higher activity in those altcoins and so do you foresee um, the the bitcoin retaining that kind of 60 to 65 percent of of trading volume share or 
you know, has has that changed since you first launched? Was Bitcoin a higher percentage a year ago, for example? Uh, are there any are there any trends that you're seeing on that front, or do you foresee it kind of staying the same? So I think it will see. It's it's a feature of how bullish the market is. Now, in a bear market, the volumes on Bitcoin tend to go higher, uh, which is also you know understandable that the heavyweights start to attract larger share of the volume or you can think of it like flight to safety uh, and cryptos you know relative safety versus altcoins whereas as market becomes more and more bullish the risk appetite increases so there is dispersion you know things start to move away from the center so people start to uh, you know go and trade the smaller coins as well and we have seen that we have seen that this year which gives us a lot of confidence that you know we have already started uh, uh, a bull market in crypto uh, and a typical feature of this kind of a bull market would be that first there'll be activity in bitcoin or the heavyweights which is bitcoin ethereum let's say and then there'll be activity in smaller coins while these things consolidate and then these things will spike up again uh, and but overall the more bullish the market is the more uh, dispersed trading is in terms of asset and we will see Bitcoin dominance or in terms of trading volumes or contribution of volumes to, uh, you know, keep coming down. I would still think if we go to 40% on Bitcoin, 60% on other coins of 40% on Bitcoin, Ethereum, 40, 45, that is a very health, healthy, uh, that's a pretty strong, you know, bull market. The risk appetite is decently high. Uh, so I think there's more room from here on. Yeah, I think I think you're totally right there, right? I think that's what we see constantly, and we've talked about that on other, you know, past episodes. Basically, you know, when when no one's talking about, uh, you know, crypto, you know, people buy Bitcoin, and when your grandma starts buying Bitcoin, yeah. you know, people within crypto start buying shit coins. Um, so that's kind of the, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's it's funny to hear that, you know, within trading volume as well. But I think it certainly rings true, um, you know, as people. You know, one see you know see Bitcoin run up. They've you know they want to shuffle their gains into other assets, or yeah. they uh, you know they're they're afraid of the price, or they don't think it has enough as much room to move. And you know, you know, with these altcoins, a lot of them tend to be significantly less liquid, so smaller amounts of capital can move the price of them significantly more. So I certainly yeah. think that makes sense. Yeah, altcoins are very illiquid, and look, we are giving markets on these things, but we have to be very careful on what we offer a market on. Uh, there are a bunch of tests that we have to do. Not only that, these markets are illiquid. So your market makers are, you know, their job is not to be brave, right? Their, their job is to provide liquidity and uh, they want to make sure that they can hedge themselves out. So so some of these coins, uh, the cost of leverage can be pretty high. Uh, cost of leverage, you can read this as funding or the basis on the futures side. Uh, these things can trade at huge discounts, at times at huge premiums. And you will incur a serious impact to be able to build huge positions in these. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, you're building an ecosystem here. You're building rails for the next generation of derivatives markets and cryptos, right? So that's part and parcel of the, of the game. And let me add a few things here. Uh, earlier, I said that, look, technology is really important when you're building a derivatives exchange on altcoins. And the reason I say that is, uh, here you have markets which run 24 cross 7. 
right? There is no circuit breakers. You're talking about highly volatile assets. This uh, quite illiquid, highly volatile, and 24 cross seven. So there is literally no protection that you have. Uh, you have very fast moving asset class, and on, on that, crypto has basically the norm of giving very high leverage. Uh, so then, once you start to work with these constraints, you have to make sure that your trading engine and your risk management engine is able to do so you know is able to margin each coin appropriately and why is that challenging so okay think about it think about a traditional market where you have a market open a market close and a circuit breaker now at the beginning of the day the exchange knows that look how much can this customer lose if the market moves by you know x percent now if you have a trading band and if you are tall uh, if you have more money that the customer can incur losses of then you are you're pretty much fairly margined. So you don't really need to do real-time margining. Uh, whereas in cryptos, what you are doing is you're doing a real-time margining for every position. And you're basically your price is changing with every tick. And every tick you are margining all the customers. Now, if you have one contract or two contracts or 10 contracts, that's okay. But if you have 200 contracts, then it becomes a huge problem. So now it's a problem where you have single wallet or two wallets, the like USDT and BTC, on which a customer has, say, 50 coins, on which they have, say, 50 positions, and then a bunch of other contracts with options and else. And everyone is making a margin call in real time to the same wallet, each of these contracts. And your system has to do this for each and every customer. So essentially, your complexity increases uh, quadratically. And this is not a problem that, you know, traditional exchanges have solved. So this is not a problem that CME has solved or HKSE has solved or any other exchange that builds their own technology has solved. This is a new problem. So you have to go and solve uh, this problem on your own. And it takes time to solve. It takes time. You'll have to build rules and you can do it. But yeah, uh, this is where it becomes, you know, really challenging uh, because you will start to see that your systems start to uh, come under heavy load, your systems start to, you know, uh, face latency attacks. And that is where unless your systems are able to offer very high speed of, uh, you know, not only matching, matching is the easiest part. Uh, so transaction per speed, which includes risk checks for all the positions. If your systems, risk systems are not able to handle that kind of load, you will not be able to scale. And we realized this problem very early because we went into the altcoin space very early. So when we went into the space in 2018 end, and by 2019 March, we had like 10, 15 coins on which we were offering futures. We realized that look, to get to 100 coins, uh, and this is just futures and then options on top of that, to get to so many contracts, you will need trading engine and risk engine that can basically handle that kind of complexity. So we spent a lot of time building technology that can help us support higher volumes. And we, we're very confidently, I can say that, look, we can launch 100, 100 futures on 100 coins without any problem. The reason we would not, we have not launched them is more to do with other constraints on spot market liquidity and, you know, frequency of trading on spot market and those things, not so much on the uh, trading engine or risk engine bottleneck on our end. And these things are quite different. So if you see, by, if you see Deribit, they have, 
you know, to trade in Bitcoin, you have to bring Bitcoin. To trade in Ethereum, you have to bring Ethereum. Now, they have very, uh, you know, good technology. But yeah, these are constraints that are built into your systems, right? So changing them takes time. Uh, similarly, you know, if you, you'll see these on multiple exchanges that everyone has a few constraints. And this margining and changing the whole margining thing is not that straightforward. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. You've, you've kind of alluded to it a few times now, um, but, you know, the liquidity issue and the identifying tokens list. So I'm super excited to yes. to dive into that. Just a couple couple of quick things I want to get through first. And I think you've you've kind of hit on this as, a little bit as well. But, you know, who are Delta's customers today? And, and uh, you know, are you mostly dealing with, you know, retail or, you know, quote unquote, I, I would say, you know, professional slash institutional flow? Uh, you know, where are you, your users based and how are they interacting with Delta? Is it via front end or API? So Delta's customer base is, uh, you know, okay, used to be pretty heavy retail based. Now it's increasingly more and more uh, uh, professional, also institution. So we are onboarding a lot of funds, uh, a small crypto funds. We're uh, onboarding a lot of them actively. We used to have a lot more trading. A lot of our trading activity used to come from and uh, from the front end. Uh, now we have a good mix between API traders and uh, the you know people who are using the platform from front end. Of course, the volume uh, of number of traders on the uh, number of people who are using the front end is more than the number of people who are using the API. But the API guys tend to do higher volumes. Uh, which is also, I think, quite intuitive. Uh, so they at, they would have higher share in the volume. But yeah, the number of people who are using the front end is uh, higher. And our customers is come there, from... Is there any trends in terms of what assets they're trading? Like are your API customers trading Bitcoin more versus yeah. your front end customers are trading more altcoins? Yeah, uh, there is trends in that as well, which is again, because whenever you're writing codes and you're you know doing API execution through a strategy, you want to do it on a more liquid uh, asset class, right? Uh, and when you are doing these things on a, you know, Bitcoin has good amount of liquidity, then you have Ethereum. Uh, like we said, look at altcoins, uh, sometimes the liquidity is thin. So first top, top 10 coins, you won't have, that big a problem i mean unless you want to take million dollar plus position but yeah uh smaller than that uh, you know you will have to suffer impact at million dollars uh, plus position but yeah uh, uh smaller coins than that your impact will be even greater and uh, guys who trade with apis tend to focus more on the larger coins now uh, larger coins i would also include things like link lend xrp at times but very heavy on Bitcoin. And so how do you go about attracting liquidity to your platform? I mean, I think one of the things that I find really interesting in this space that, is that a lot of times the tokens are actually hiring their own market makers. And, you know, you, you could have a token, for example, that's having an event like an exchange listing uh, and wants to make sure that there's ample liquidity on different platforms uh, when that event actually happens. And so are you, are you seeing, you know, how, how are you attracting liquidity? And are you seeing at times that, you know, market makers are coming that you're not necessarily interacting with as well? So market makers come to Delta and, you know, create books. And we also interact with market makers and encourage them to uh, uh, provide liquidity on Delta. We also provide incentives to market makers to provide liquidity on Delta. Uh, on coins like Bitcoin, 
we have higher incentive that look we have common incentive which is for everyone so everyone who is a maker gets a negative fee which means that there's a revenue share right every trade has a maker and a taker if the maker has a negative fee that means whatever revenue we are taking from takers we are sharing 30% of that with the makers um and then on top of that we sometimes have additional incentives for people which are volume you know or quote density based that look if you have certain uptime certain quote density uh, tight books then we'll pay you additional incentives on smaller coins our incentives uh, th- there is higher spread so a lot of market makers also tend to you know come to those markets and look to earn that spread uh, on bitcoin the spread is tight so you know there is uh, some kind of incentives that you have to uh, provide to market makers and these are i think pretty standard uh, practices in the market that every exchange uh, pretty much follows so uh, essentially yeah these are the things that we we also do uh, when we look to attract liquidity now we are at a stage where you know market makers we have seen that market makers kind of discover us and start to provide liquidity on their own in our order books where they think that the, they can earn enough money for example in a bitcoin order book because of the revenue share or negative fee they can earn enough money they don't really even if they don't have a tie up with us or in a in a certain altcoin book where there is enough interest if they take the opposite side they can earn the funding uh, funding is exchanged between parties who are long and short on the platform and at times they can eat the spread so or uh, a lot of people do cash future arbitrage as well on the altcoins to be able to make a fixed return on their assets so we have seen that kind of activity have you have you seen the spread on spot future arbs falling significantly on altcoins uh like like they have on bitcoin yeah uh, but still pretty high they are still pretty high and they are higher on the usdt pairs typically than on the btc pair because i don't think there is enough usdt in the market as in what i'm trying to say is this wow. no no i'm not saying okay. there's yeah what i'm saying is there's <laughs> there's not enough enough usdt in the market which means that there is about 10 billion dollars of usdt available right uh, now on there's a bunch of that that is being used on the spot market side there is bunch of that that is being used on the defi side now and then there is the futures market right so in futures you have uh, binance the primary mo currency of settlement there is uh, usdt a bunch of other coins uh, uh, other exchanges like okx and others they also have the primary mode of settlement as usdt so how much will you support in 10 billion right uh, the futures right. oi point yeah and the the derivatives market open interest is already close to 5 billion so if you have you know a system wide leverage of you know uh, 20% as well then also you need a billion dollars so you're blocking your 10% of your existing supply and so the Are point you seeing I'm, any other stable coins being used in derivatives no or just really tether just tether and think of it this way right the market cap i was looking at these numbers today itself the market cap on tether is 10 billion the usdc is 1.5 dai is 1. let's call it let's say it's 1.2 or something so so this there's, there's a you know it's very top heavy so uh, the total market cap 
on all stable coins put together is about 15 billion dollars uh, of which 10 billion is in is in usdt so there's just not enough usdt in the system to be able to support the kind of crypto activity that we are looking at you have billions of dollars of trading going on and you really don't have enough supply so what that means to me is first there's a huge room for usdt to grow because it has the lead of you know if if you have usdt paired uh, usdt paired derivatives grow then there's huge room for usdt to grow first and second till the time that happens you'll see very high funding on usdt settled contracts so if you see in the recent run up the cost of borrowing usdt and going long or the cost of margin or the you know funding on perpetuals and other things basically went up as high as 21% so <laughs> we're paying 21% on a stable coin to you know go margin long i mean uh, that is very high level of funding so if the market is willing to pay that much interest on a stable coin uh, then there is serious dearth of supply right uh so yeah in my opinion you know these this is these are things that are getting a little untouched in the market as a weird and that is why we have seen that look bitcoin derivatives okay let's talk of how does bitcoin compare to it if you launch a derivatives which are primarily margined and settled in bitcoin you have good number of bitcoin in the market to support that right you, your bitcoin market cap is 200 billion plus right and something like that yeah plus yeah that. and then you have usdt which is 10 billion so there's literally no match bitcoin can support a lot bigger economy uh, so to speak or trading economy in that uh, fashion in that uh, you know uh, parlance so that is again a very yeah, interesting no, thing that, that you know. yeah and i think a lot of people who are giving usdt settled futures will have to switch to bitcoin settled as well in my understanding uh, yeah we'll see more and more exchanges starting to offer uh, bitcoin as a mode of settlement or bitcoin as a you know currency for margining on derivatives and uh, you will see that uh, you know usdt market cap should go up further uh, that is how i am reading the situation so uh, at 10 at 6 billion my opinion was that oh this is pretty big already it is much bigger than other uh, you know counterparts and it has gone up too fast but now looking at the way markets are moving i think uh, 10 is not enough so as it it's interesting i i guess it i guess it makes sense especially if we see um you know a lot of usdc as you're saying you know was already flowing into defi and, and or usdt and that that will probably you know continue and you know there there are certainly other use cases you know you know yeah. such as remittances that i think could could take Oh yeah, some usage absolutely. of stablecoin supply. So it's funny to see all the different directions that it's going in. But it's uh, yeah, I mean, we'll be interested to to see that. Uh, it also represents kind of an existential risk for crypto that if it if it's needed in so many different places, and for whatever reason it turns out that it's not, uh, you know, really collateralized as it has been claimed to be. And and the uh, you know New York State Attorney General. Uh, or uh, you know identifies that that could that could be a, a big kind of existential risk to the market but you know certainly certainly something that's needed and i think you know we're, we've seen you know especially in the first half of this year it's an absolutely massive i mean i think you know i think from 2017 when you first entered the market until now i think you know usdt was something like a billion um yeah yeah in 
market cap. So it's up, you know, more than 10x since then. So certainly growing. So now I really want to get into kind of the meat of this and, um, you know, something you alluded to before. But one question I always wonder from exchanges is, how do you identify new tokens to list? You know, what is a starting point or impetus for adding new assets? And what are the challenges with doing so? Sure. So most of it, so identification is done primarily on demand. You know, uh, where is the action? What does uh, customer want? And uh, what is it that we can offer a futures contract on? That's a primary driver. Uh, you see, you know, what are customers trading? You see, where is the, uh, you know, where is the need for that product, either because of demand or because of some hedging kind of a need. That look, if some coin has... Wait, just, yeah? Really quick. So how do you measure demand? Are you just looking at spot market liquidity? Is that is that your measure? So. Demand you can figure out by how much customer chatter is around something, and you know then then comes the test of the liquidity and then frequency on the spot side. Uh, I'll come to that in a minute, but yeah, general sense of demand you will get by looking at uh, you know uh, which coins have higher trading volumes, which coin has good chatter around it, and which sector is seeing action. Uh, so yeah, you will identify a coin, uh, and then you'll have it has to fulfill a bunch of criteria. So. It has to be listed on a good quality spot exchange. Uh, when I say a good quality spot exchange, I mean a spot exchange which is well known, has decent liquidity, uh, has decent order books and everything. Why? Because you have to form a reference price from somewhere, right? Every time you give a future, it's based on some spot. So you have to create a spot index. And that spot index is going to take the price from some other spot market. So it has to be listed on a, one of the top spot exchanges uh, and has should have decent liquidity there. Uh, not just in terms of liquidity on the volume traded, uh, but also in terms of the order book depth and others, uh, because you that gives you a sense of how many number of people are active in it. Volume traded can be, you know, things can trade big volume on a few days and then dry out over a period of time, uh, whereas order book depth kind of gives you a sense of how sticky or active this trading, you know, is. Uh, then you look at things like, is the coin traded frequently? Uh, which means that the two ticks that I will receive on my spot index, will they be too far apart? Because if you're using your spot index to form a fair price for the future and you're using that fair price to liquidate participants and their positions, then you want to make sure that, look, this is a very, this is a latest and updated price, right? So you want to make sure that the trading frequency is good enough. It doesn't happen that the coin trades uh, once in two minutes or once in a minute or something like that. That is way too slow. Uh, you have a health check that continuously checks that, look, how old is the last tick that I received for the coin? And then uh, how frequently do I, am I receiving, am I, am I receiving the spot index or is the spot index updating itself frequently enough or not then you look at how is the distribution of the coin in terms of its holders so if it is hold if it's held by a few uh, entities a few people there's not enough float in the market that means that the coin will you know will possibly have very high volatility uh, you want something that is evenly distributed in the market uh, more the float more the more even the distribution, the coin tends to trade higher and the price that you have on spot is a more more dependable or a reliable price. Uh, you 
then we do some kind of checks on the volatility that the coin has uh, because at the end of the day if the volatility is way too high that we look at the volatility to decide on the leverage that we offer on something and if something has very high volatility then either we'll give very low leverage on it or we'll not give a futures contract on it because beyond the point if you don't offer leverage then you're just offering spot trading right uh, so so yeah we do a bunch of these checks which are a lot dependent essentially the thing that we are trying to see is uh, how stable reliable and well discovered the price of the underlying asset is uh, if it's a new asset somewhere, then it's a issue at times yeah you were saying so something you alluded to was was reference pricing and that that's been an yeah. issue in the past for bitmex uh, especially, I think I don't remember if it was Bitstamp or there, but there was one underlying uh, trading venue that was 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 in their reference pricing, which had caused an issue when there was a large trade yeah, placed yeah. on that venue. So how how do you actually go about reference pricing in this space, and how do you identify what exchanges to use as part of your reference pricing calculations, especially for some of these uh, altcoins which aren't necessarily traded on every market? So. Index design is a science in itself. And, you know, a lot of work has to be done just after identifying that, look, we have to offer a coin on this, uh, uh, you know, on this asset. So let's look at what happened with BitMix. It happened somewhere in the first half of last year. I think Bitstamp price uh, fell uh, aggressively. And then that kind of, you know, uh, caused the that kind of uh, basically their index had one third contribution of uh, bitstamp and that kind of trickle uh, reduced the uh, the price significantly and then the whole cycle started so now when you are looking when you are getting prices from two or three uh, uh, venues right the first thing you need so, so let's say you are designing btc usd uh, reference price like what is the real price of bitcoin to us dollars I want to design that because I want to offer a perpetual swap contract on top of that with that reference. So the first thing that you'll do is you'll look for pure BTC USD. When I say pure BTC USD, you don't go and look for venues where BTC is trading against USDC or USDT or some other stable coin or some proxy of dollar. No, you look for BTC trading against dollar where there is free supply in and out of Bitcoin that look people can buy and sell bitcoin and free supply in and out of us dollar that people can buy and sell us dollar against bitcoin and deposit and withdraw because if an exchange has deposits halted that means there are limited number of usdc usd on that exchange and then that can drive the price higher right that kind of thing has happened with a few spot exchanges in the past that they have an issue with their deposit on fiat or a withdrawal on fiat which means that if the issue is on withdrawal, there's an oversupply of USD on the exchange. Uh, and if the issue is with deposit, then you'll have undersupply of USD on the exchange. I think something like this, if I'm not wrong, happened on Bitfinex last year and their, their BTC USD was trading at a premium. So first thing is to identify that. Look, let's identify the pure pair. Uh, so you take Bitcoin, you take US dollar, and then you take... Uh, so with Bitcoin, US dollar, a, a bigger contract like that, what you will do is you'll look to see where are the top spot volumes. So you identify top three, four exchanges where you have Bitcoin traded against US dollar, pure US dollar. And then you see that 
which have good volumes and good trading frequency. Now, Bitstamp is one of them. Kraken is one of them. Coinbase uh, is one of them. Bitfinex is one of them. 8-bit has decent volumes. So you take a bunch of these, uh, three or five as you decide. And But what you want to make sure is their volumes need to be comparable. You don't want to be adding something which is which trades 10 million a day with something which trades 100 million a day. And if you're doing that, you have to put a weight on, on that, a weight of historical volumes. So you have to volume weight that. Now, we typically prefer to do is, you know, take top three or four exchanges which are comparable in volumes and use those exchanges to, you know, drive the price of the underlying. Now, when you take price of each, you what will you take? You take the last rated price or you derive it from an order book that is generated on that exchange. A better method is to kind of take the order book on every exchange and use that price to derive the price of the uh, BTC USD on whatever component exchange you are using. So if you remember in at Halloween last year, on Halloween last year, there was an issue with Deribit where they have, they were taking five component in this, uh, you know, price of BTC USD from five exchanges and Coinbase and uh, another exchange, which I think was, uh, uh, you know, some asset, uh, asset, some big exchange in London. Both of them went into maintenance at the same time. And when they both went into maintenance at the same time, what happened was that coin uh, that Deribit was using an outlier detection uh, um, method on top of that. So out of five, uh, you had one out of five, I think they were using, or out of seven, they were using five or out of five, they were using three. I'm not sure on that. But essentially, they were using something which had price zero. So they added 9,000, 9,000, 9,000 and zero and they got a price of 72,000. And there was a huge uh, liquidations on derivative. There was quite a few issues. I had written a blog about that as well. And uh, I think there was 100 to 150 BTC uh, you know, liquidations or loss. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So, it was, it was, it was in the tens of millions or twenties of millions of dollars. I remember yeah. that. So the thing was that, look, what was the issue there? I think what the, the issue was, they did not identify that two exchanges, if they go into, if they are not healthy, then you have to remove. So you have to continuously check that wherever you are taking the price from, that is healthy. Now, how do you define the health? You define health by, is the market in auction? That is not a healthy market. Is the exchange operational? If it is not operational, it's not a healthy market. Uh, is the tick refreshing continuously? Uh, if it is not refreshing continuously, it's not a healthy market. So on the real time, you have to mark exchanges as healthy and healthy, and then you have to take it from there. And I think what they did not do was uh, they, they use unhealthy index, and then that caused an issue. Uh, so yeah, long story short, this this goes on, and then you have to have a bunch of uh, you know other filters when you do this for altcoins because not all the altcoins are listed on uh, a lot of a lot uh, place you know many places so there are fewer markets and then you have to be very careful when you're designing the index yeah you were saying no i was just going to you know ask i mean one of the things that you mentioned with deribit was anomaly detection right or, or uh, you know basically they were you know not including potentially another market as well on top of those existing two um, you know, so how, how do you, how do you go out, like, how do you go about anomaly detection? Like, you know, if you see that, you know, let's say you're using four in four, uh, exchanges as a reference price, 
Um, you know, all of them seem to be, you know, actively trading and potentially healthy. Um, but one of the prices is two thousand or three thousand dollars less than the other. Are, are you still including that? How do you how do you account for that? So this has also happened last year, and this has happened when Kraken there was a Bitcoin was trading, I think five thousand five hundred, and somebody sold an three million dollars in spot market on Kraken at a price of four thousand five hundred. And at that time, I remember that outlier detection worked beautifully because what it did was it says that it outlier detection would say that look, Bitcoin price uh, is uh, at one exchange is four thousand five hundred. Let let's exclude that price and let's just take the three other prices. What was ignored was that look this this price that you have ignored which is 4500 3 million dollars has have traded on that price whereas all the three other prices that you have included which is 5500 you have traded less than a million dollars say on that tick so at times you know what you will you will end up into these situations that uh, you might ignore the data but that data was the the key data right so so this is a very this is a very tricky problem if there are three people in the room and two of them are saying one thing and one is saying something else. And you have to detect who is telling truth and who is telling lies. It only takes one person to, to change their decision to change the majority, right? So, right, right. so you have to, so if two people are saying that, look, this is day and one of them is saying night, only one person has to change who's saying that, that it's day to change that decision right, in, right. in a big way. So anyways, right. how do you solve it's, for it's, it? Then? Yeah, yeah, you no, I'm just, it's it's funny, you know, people don't realize it, but it's such a difficult problem to solve. I mean, there's so many, you know, we, we, we you know, we're a data company and we do lots of different data, but we don't really touch market data because I'm just like, there's, there's so many people that know better than me and there are so many intricacies involved with it that I'm not even going to try. And so it's, it's interesting to hear, you know, hear from the CEO of a derivatives exchange, just how much really goes into it and all the things you have to account for. Because, you know, like, you know, from derivatives perspective, I mean, they probably, you don't, you don't really, when you're building it, you don't think about the idea of, you know, two exchanges going into maintenance at the exact same time, but it can certainly happen. So it's just, it's, and I'm sure there's going to be issues that emerge in the future of just things that were unforeseen as well, because it's impossible to foresee all the issues that could happen. Yeah. So this is again, one of these things, right? Index design is a continuously evolving process. There is uh, no right answer. It's not, you know, you have to continuously fine tune the rules and, uh, you know, things that will work in one situation. So this, uh, you know, this Kraken Wick uh, that I'm talking about, Deribit ignored it because of its uh, outlier detection. And that day outlier detection worked well, but did not work well, uh, you know, four months later when two exchanges went into maintenance at the same time. And, you know, kudos to them. They, they made their customers whole, which is great. But the point is, uh, you know, some they ended up losing money. So again, and customers had a bad experience so again this is pretty important to solve how do you solve for it one of the best methods that we have uh, seen and you know uh, what we do is you add the order books so you add liquidity from mul multiple places uh, and you add the order books and then you try to determine look what is the uh, you know on the added order books what is the price that you are getting what is the mid price that you are getting and you have to make sure that you read exchanges status uh, before you consider uh, the price of that exchange. If you're getting a status which is unhealthy, most exchanges will send a status that, look, either we are not operational or we are in auction, which means that you can put the orders, but there won't be any matching, 
which was the case with Coinbase when that derivative thing happened. So most exchanges will send you something that, look, we are in auction or we are in uh, maintenance or, uh, you know, if not, then classify them as healthy or unhealthy, uh, depending on their tick frequency, and then add the order, add the order books to get to a price. Uh, but yeah, despite that, it is a continuously evolving science and it it changes. You If you're... If you are trading something which is really small and listed on one or two exchanges versus you are trading something which is where the price is well discovered, it's trading on four or five exchanges uh, versus it's trading, uh, you know. So internally, we talk about it as an index with three constituents or four constituents or two constituents or one constituent and design changes with the number of constituents. So it's not a one solution fits all kind of a thing. Uh, index design will be different depending on the number of contributing exchanges. Um, right. No, that 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 makes sense. It's uh, certainly certainly something uh, you know that's that's really really interesting. So, kind of back to the you know um, you know the the identification of tokens. On the other side of things, you know. Have you ever thought about delisting a specific asset or have you ever delisted an asset? And what would be the criteria or reasoning for doing so? And I guess in context of this conversation we just had, would you know potentially not being able to form a reference price be a yeah. good reason to yeah, delist yeah, an asset? Absolutely. absolutely. So we often delist contracts and we've had multiple exercises of listing, delisting, relisting, all this kind of, you know, uh, thing happens and that kind of tell you that nothing is cast in stone uh, if I ask so for example you know at one point we had neo but then uh, price became if if an asset goes starts to take a beating and the price reduces quite a bit the liquidity in an asset goes down quite a bit then you have to and it starts to fail your health checks then you have to delist that asset right uh, then things can come back as well so you had delisted something, but then the activity started to pick up because of some structural change that happened on the asset side. They started to do something differently. That team started to do something differently. That brought action back in the coin and then liquidity back in the coin. Then, uh, you know, we also will be happy to relist the coin. So that's a very normal exercise. It goes on. It's like, a, think of it like, a, you know, qualifier is a list of quali qualifiers that every coin has to pass. Uh, if you are not passing those qualifiers, we'll delist you. And once you start to pass them again, those health checks or quality checks, then we'll relist you. And yeah, typically, that's a, those are the criteria that one would you know, look at for any of this decision. And so what's next for Delta? What are you guys working on that has you excited and, uh, you know, what is, you know, immediately and then what is kind of further down the roadmap? Sure. So the vision with Delta is to kind of make an exchange, which is a very sophisticated derivatives exchange where you can get, you know, different kind of uh, derivative products, which will help you trade different kind of features on the asset and has different kind of risks. So, for example, even today, our product offering is much, much, uh, much more advanced than, uh, you know, other exchanges. Like I said, we have options, we have interest rate derivatives, uh, we have calendar spreads. So you can trade 
uh, Bitcoin futures. You can trade a November-September calendar spread. That's a single contract which will essentially sell November, uh, buy November, sell September. So you can do that kind of thing. Uh, and essentially, in the beginning of this year, we focused that, look, we have to really expand our product offering uh, on the financial product side. So we added options, we added move contracts, which are nothing but a straddle on, you know, on Bitcoin. Uh, we are going to offer knockout, knock-in options. Uh, we are, uh, you know, we're going to offer uh, basically interest rate swaps, like I said, on a bunch of other coins. We are launching Ethereum and then BCH. So like I was saying, in the beginning of this year, our focus was to launch a lot of uh, different financial products. And we have done that. We have futures on a lot of coins. We have options. We are focusing a lot on altcoin options. Um, we have interest rate derivatives. And we also have calendar spreads, like I said. Uh, in the near future, uh, you will see uh, a lot more activity on options side on Delta. Uh, because we have been building that in the first quarter of this year and the second quarter of this year. You'll see a lot more altcoins having options. We are the only ones to offer options on Link as of now. We're the only ones to offer options on BNB as of now. Uh, we'll be listing options on Tezos. We'll be listing options on Lend. We'll be listing options on a bunch of these other coins and probably a DeFi basket as well. So index options as well. Uh, that will kind of you know uh, complete our product pipeline to a larger extent. And then we'll be focusing a lot more on improving our margining. Uh, when I say margining, uh, you know, making sure that we provide multi-collateral margin uh, to our customers. So you can bring in, you can bring in, right now you will have to bring either Bitcoin or USDT to margin on Delta. What we are building is that, look, you can bring in Ethereum, you can bring in some other kind of uh, stable coin and you will be able to margin on Delta uh, with any of these coins. Uh, that is also in under works and will be released in a month's time or so. And we've already experimented on that with some of our larger customers. Uh, so that is something. And then we are coming up with our own token. So that is pretty exciting. And that will be a very unique and token, which is which kind of encompasses uh, what a derivative exchange does. And, you know, it kind of fits the use case. We've spent a decent amount of time in building it. And that is really, you know, keeping us excited. And uh, it is due to be released uh, in the next 60 days. So those are the things that are, uh, you know, due in this quarter. Uh, and yeah, that is what is keeping us exciting, excited. And so one question that we ask all of our guests is, you know, crypto is a market, and I think you'll appreciate this coming from the equity world, that that really lacks, you know, quote unquote fundamentals, right? You know, there's no earnings or revenue or dividends. So how do you think about asset valuation within crypto? And what would you define as the fundamentals in this industry? And does it depend on the coin? So it's a tricky question because for the obvious reasons, right? Valuations in cryptos can be all over the place. And... Uh, it definitely depends on the fundamentals of coins because eventually you cannot run away so so far away from the fundamentals, right? Things have to catch up. Now, uh, we actually did a report on Compound. Uh, you know, we published basically an analysis on how we would value Compound about two months back or a month and a half back, something. Uh, 
it was pretty well covered i think coindesk covered it few other players covered it uh, we at that time were of the opinion that the value of compound should be close to uh, $40 in a in a year from now uh, and the logic was you know we we thought of it like a like a bank that look this protocol is like a bank where people deposit money and then people use withdraw that money right there's lending and borrowing so if there is a book size that you create and then just as you value a bank on price to book you value the protocol on price to book and then because the the token does not have right to the cash flows so what you do is you look at equity that has right to cash flows and right to voting and equity that has right to cash flows and no right to the voting so class a class b kind of shares in their traditional markets and what we discovered was that class uh, b share the one without a voting right would trade at a certain discount to the one with the voting right and we tra- then tried to estimate that look using that discount and you triangulating it for multiple companies that you know we looked at facebook then there's tata then there is uh, google there's a bunch of other companies you can look at and you can find the value of voting uh, once you have the value of voting and then you have your price to book uh, since your value of voting is in terms of proportion of the value of equity uh, you can estimate the value of uh, a token which is just a governance token uh, on top of a protocol that has a uh behavior like a bank or uh, you know uh, that has basically customers depositing and withdrawing assets in it now the price has was 200 something at that time went to 140 has come back to 180 uh so what you have to understand is that the, this is a new market right though your analysis which is fundamental in nature will give you a number but you have to give the premium of uh of uh, being a new market being an underdiscovered market because uh a famous example in that would be was the was the way to value amazon in early 2000s or in late 90s the same as how you would value walmart no right because there was a whole different realm of possibility that opened up so you have to give that extra premium on uh value of a coin that look this is a new pa- paradigm and the valuations are going to be a little stressed here because of the uh, value of uncertainty of the value of the unknown uh, which can be pretty high uh, but yeah having said that uh, when you value these things you have to go back to the same kind of fundamental uh, you know problem solving uh, method that what does an asset entail what does an asset give you when you hold it and if you can basically add up those cash flows and predict them and add them then it should be it should be able to give you the value of that asset and now there is a huge unknown there that you have to bake in for that is where it becomes really tricky because you cannot really use a dcf or you cannot really use a multiple based approach uh, no no amount of you know estimating the terminal value uh, will be enough in a dcf model Uh, it is all going to be driven a lot on the how 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 correctly do you estimate the growth and the thing with undiscovered markets is growth can be highly volatile so so it's it it is a challenging task uh, having said that uh, one has to do some kind of an analysis to justify uh, any you know ascribing any price to uh, to an asset 
and uh, for our from from a business point of view it doesn't really impact us that much but yeah being in the market you are, uh, always are interested in what is be, uh, being valued somewhere and at what price is that being valued at and how so that makes us interested yeah you're saying no no i look i i totally agree with you and look we could we could spend hours <laughs> discussing yeah. this i'm sure you know you know especially like you know then how do you value a protocol like ethereum which yeah. doesn't necessarily have any cash flows or what is a cash flow on ethereum versus an application built on top yeah, right absolutely. so i certainly think uh, th- there's there's so much there you know i'd love to love to kind of you know wrap up with a, with a few final questions mm-hmm. um you know, one question we like to ask our guests, or um, or two questions rather, is what do you think the biggest risks for crypto are, and and what has you most excited for the space? So the biggest risk for crypto, in my opinion, remains regulatory. Now we have seen positive signals on the regulation side uh, from mature country markets in the U.S. in Europe. Uh, you know, uh, whatever President Xi said and. On, in October last year, again, for the blockchain industry, that was pretty positive. So you have seen uh, that, look, major economies are leaning, are taking more and more positive stance towards crypto. Uh, India's stance is still unclear. So uh, that is one major economy that has not uh, clearly indicated its stance, but others have kind of uh, shown, you know, which side they are leaning on. or uh, They are more towards the idea of, look, let's incorporate crypto in the asset ecosystem rather than keeping it out because there's enough number of enough amount of you know community building volume building ecosystem building and value creation that has happened and it's the same journey that every asset goes through i mean if you go back in 1920s you had the same thing for equities that you know people have different perspectives and then markets were building up and shops were coming up that were offering leverage and then it all streamlined over a period of time so I think uh, that uh, will happen. But having said that, yes, regulatory risk remains, uh, which I think can push out the growth of the ecosystem. I'm 100% confident that, look, uh, crypto mainstream is kind of inevitable. But yeah, uh, a negative surprise on the regulation from some side can uh, hamper the, the growth in certain regions or uh, you know, in general. That remains a big risk. And the another risk that I think is basically hype can be good and can be bad. So if something, you know, if you, you know, you, it can impact you negatively. So uh, things when they go up too fast, uh, they will eventually come off. And that uh, uh, can be, that, that will be pretty bad for a lot of people who get sucked into uh, something at the wrong time. So it's very important that the ecosystem uh, stays clean and that is where the value of derivatives also comes through that look, people can kind of hedge at the right time so the froth gets cleaned out. Uh, the more you have these, uh, you know, uh, spikes and pump and dump kind of things or behaviors, the, the bad is it is for the asset in the long run or the ecosystem or the industry in the long run. So you what you really want is sustained growth, which is, driven by utility, by performance, and by, you know, use case. And that is really important uh, for the for the growth of ecosystem. And uh, just euphoria-driven run-ups can be, can be pretty negative, uh, which I think is uh, remains a risk. Uh, so, yeah, this, in my opinion, are, uh, you know, the bigger structural risks 
like I said, overall, I'm pretty positive because there's enough amount of adoption that has happened. Bitcoin is now more than 10 years old, or close, uh, you know, about that time. So it's been kind of, it has seen two, three cycles. There's enough proof. There's enough number of people uh, which gives confidence to regulators. There's enough number of companies that have done built businesses on uh, on top of the, the under, uh, you know, in the industry, which gives regulators confidence and other things. And uh, the chances of anything uh, going totally haywire is very low. But yeah, uh, still remains a, a risk. And what has you most excited? So honestly, uh, we we come from the derivative side, right? So we are really excited by how uh, we are able to participate in building a an ecosystem, building a rails for on which you know an infrastructure on which an ecosystem can build. So being in this uh, industry, uh, seeing the journey of how an asset goes to becoming a mainstream asset, that is really exciting. Then on top of that, being able to provide derivatives markets. Uh, which uh, we believe people will use, uh, you know, an our product uh, to be able to participate in these market, hedge their risks and uh, use the product uh, not only for speculation, but also for uh, other needs. So that keeps us uh, really excited. I mean, we we are seeing, we are amid an explosion uh, in, of growth in derivative side, right? And it's a pretty exciting journey to be part of. So, so we are pretty uh you know excited by that and every day it's like a it's like a new uh, territory for us so which is a very uh, very uh, special place to be very good place to be you're pretty excited and what you're like i said in the you know in the beginning of the conversation we launched a coin yesterday and saw huge volumes on that in you know uh in in one day and that tells you that look market is responding positively to what you're building. So yeah, that is pretty exciting. And so my last question is, if you could go back to your first day starting Delta and give yourself one piece of advice, what would you tell yourself? So I think I would, uh, you know, we, like I said, we are doing a token. Uh, We believe community is really important in crypto and it's a, uh, you know, it's a community driven, uh, driven industry. It's a community driven ecosystem. And, I believe we should have done token a long time back. So, uh, because it helps you, it helps you attach your community to your business. It helps you attach your, you know, uh, build loyalty, build a sense of ownership, build a sense of, uh, you know, attachment, a common, this thing um, with your customers. Uh, And there's been good interest from our customers because people come to Delta for the unique products we offer, right? So all of our customers are discovered Delta because of the, the things that they cannot get other on other exchanges. So that has been since day one, the reason, uh, the highest, you know, uh, you can say why people come to Delta. So the biggest reason. And there's, a, there's already a huge attachment and we want to kind of further solidify it with a, with a token, which we are doing now. But yeah, that is one thing that I think we should have done long time back. I think there's... There's a lot of value in in the token in terms of how you kind of you know bond yourself with your uh, with your customers with your community and kind of build uh, an ecosystem uh, with uh, you know around that. So that is one thing which I think we should have done earlier, but now we are doing it and we are uh, pretty excited with what we have designed. 
uh, it is a pretty exciting design. So, so yeah. All right. Well, awesome. Thanks so much. Just, you know, final thing, where can people uh, find out more about yourself and Delta? Where can they follow you and check you guys out? Sure. So our website is rather simple. It is delta.exchange. And then, you know, on the website, you'll see, uh, you know, the details of team, our individual handles and everything. You can find me on Twitter with uh, uh, Pankaj underscore Delta underscore EX. And, you know, we are all pretty accessible. Uh, We're available on Telegram, on Twitter, and anytime, you know, anyone wants to talk about markets or derivatives, uh, we're very very excited. So, yeah, uh, look us up, and this is where your, you know, audience can also find us. Great. Thanks so much for for, for coming on. It was great having you. Nice to uh, come on, and uh, thanks for, uh, you know, having me over. It was great to talk to you, too. I look forward to more interactions.